This is Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab, your host, Greg Gazin, speaker, blogger, author, and syndicated veteran columnist of Troy Media. Episode 174, Tips on Becoming a World-Class Host and MC, with our guest, Nathan Kassar. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab. This is your host, Greg Gazin. Now, folks, being a successful MC or host takes more than just being able to be a good talker with an ability to wing it off the mic. Now, our special guest today is an award-winning professional and one of Australia's premier wedding and corporate MCs. He's known as the go-to guy for making any event unforgettable. Nathan Kassar has over a decade of experience and a strong reputation in the entertainment industry. This includes being a former entertainment host for the prestigious Princess Cruise Lines for several years. Nathan has also had the privilege of performing for thousands of happy guests spanning 40-plus nationalities around the globe. With us today from Sydney, Australia, the master of ceremonies himself, but in the role of our special guest today, Nathan Kassar, welcome to the Toastcaster podcast. Hi, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I know it's a 16-hour time difference and it's bright and early in the morning and I know you're a pretty busy guy. We were talking offline about you just had an event late last night. Thank you for <laughs> taking the time to speak with us. No, it's all good. No, it's a pleasure. I mean, I uh, I knew what I signed up for. You know, I had that I had that event booked for a number of months, and when yours came up, I was like, Nah, of course I'm gonna I'm gonna slot you in. It's uh, it's it's a real pleasure to be here. You know, I think it's also good momentum. I don't like staying off the microphone for too long, so this is this is always good practice. Nathan Kassar, here at Toastcaster, we we strive to help others build more confidence, be better communicators, and better leaders. With what you do, requires as we call it in sports, and I know that there's a cricket analogy we call it a hat trick, right? Mm. Three things. So to help kick us off, I'd really love if you could take us back and share with us just a little bit of your origins. I understand what you're doing today back then seemed probably just like a pipe dream. Oh, to some degree in the sense that an attainable pipe dream, which is kind of ironic. Essentially, when I was a child, I was very introverted. I was bullied a lot as a kid. I'm very much the antithesis of that today. But it was through my desire, just something in, enlightened within me when I was in grade six, that I had to be a good public speaker. In fact, I wanted to be a great public speaker. I've always been an overachiever. And then when uh, I went on my very first cruise with PO Australia, when I was 14, I saw another whole realm of public performance, which was the cruise director. I was just enamored. I was like, it's incredible that he'll you know, say a couple of things and the crowd goes wild. And like, I'm feeling that energy and they're feeling that energy and just everything was just amazing. From that very moment, I just had this spark in me that said, I must, must be a cruise director one day. And I kept that dream alive, kept uh, public speaking, kept debating in high school and uh, in university. Just before I went to ships, I graduated um, at the end of 2014, but I'd already received the job with Princess Cruises by then as a junior assistant cruise director. And that was, you know, just as a wild, like last six months of my degree where I've been able to play on my dream of being a cruise director, graduating, knowing that my contract was coming at some point was just so exciting. And uh, as soon as I stepped on that, on the Grand Princess on January 3rd, 2015 in Los Angeles, it was really, truly the uh, the next step in my life. Very grateful to having the opportunity to start that journey. And it's really transformed who I am today. Wow. 
I mean, obviously you overcame adversity. You were bullied as a child. You were an introvert. I can certainly relate. I remember the first time I had to answer a question at Toastmasters and I had up to two minutes to do so and I didn't make it past 12 seconds. I'm just wondering, was there a time where you thought, I can't do this? I'm going to say my initial instinct is no. I'm going to stay with no. Certainly been a couple of things in my life I could certainly say, yeah, it's out of my bounds. But I've always been somebody who, you know, straight A student and, uh, you know, extracurricular kind of guy. And I've had good mentors in my life too. It's never been something that I felt, felt was unobtainable. It just felt like I had to just keep working hard at and take on the advice of people around me who were giving me, you know, the strength and the confidence and the know-how to be able to get better than the last performance I made. That formula just kept happening. I think when things got hard, obviously, was when I joined ships and I had to step up the game and, you know, move from just wanting to be a good public speaker who could craft a speech and command an audience to some degree with a prepared sort of topics and whatnot to somebody who now had to own a stage, had to be dynamic, had to be exciting, had to be somebody who people looked up to and essentially had to be the same person, but even better than what I had experienced when I was 14. And so I guess that was just the flame that kept me going. And certainly there were days that were tough, but I don't think I really ever thought to myself, no, I can't achieve this. Some people, they say they have this dream but they're not even really willing to take that first step. Now, you touched upon the fact that you got advice, you have some mentors, you said earlier how you talked a little bit about taking public speaking. What were some of the other things that you did, maybe some of the other steps that you took to overcome that initial fear or what, what you did to build some of those skills that you now have today? First off, I, I guess it just goes back to just basic trust in my support network. I had to work on myself just as much as I had to work on my professional skills. If you're up on stage, and I'm sure you've 100% know this, that if you've had a bad day or things are going kind of not okay at home or something's just gone awry, your focus is going to be completely off. And when your focus is off, you can't give the best version of yourself on stage and you can't be everything you need to be. You can't even, you know, even if you're just in practice mode and you're wanting to get better at it, it's not like the most amazing gig or it's like easy little thing you're doing at work or something, but it doesn't matter what the context is. If you're not focused, then you can't perform. I worked on myself growing up to be able to have the strength and confidence to overcome the adversity that I faced, but also leaning into my support networks to be able to help me achieve that level of confidence too. And that was then able to keep spurning forward every time I would do another great performance or do another speech or win another regional competition or something in high school, for instance. It was that that really helped me to feel more confident every step I further I took. I would say another thing I, I did was, you know, get myself involved in enterprise around the idea of speaking. And what I mean by that is, I, uh, when I was in university, I actually co-founded the University of Wollongong's Debating Society. I then became an active member of building this, this society of people who were really passionate about debating just like I was. Building community and building people around you who are also passionate about this kind of thing is really key because if you have no one to be able to sort of give you advice, be critical, accept things about 
what you're trying to accomplish that you need people to give you raw uh, advice about what they're seeing from the third person perspective. And so having that, those people around me was absolutely critical as well. So I'd say along the journey, apart from just practicing and just being in on stage and all that kind of stuff was also really important to have a really solid foundation around me as well. That's incredible. And you took the initiative early on that obviously helped you about getting guidance and building community. I thought that's incredible. Now, one of the things that you have to do in your job, obviously, is to speak into the microphone. And a lot of that's going to require improv. It's going to require a lot of impromptu speaking. What are some of the tips? What are some of the things that you can suggest to help people build that skill? Yeah, this is a really, really key part of what I do. And also, I love answering this question. I describe my brain is sort of like uh, when I'm on stage, it's sort of like this little treasure chest of goodies that have worked in the past. What it requires is to be really acutely aware and self-aware of things that work and don't work when you're on stage. And by that, I mean like, you know, maybe phrases or little things you say, or perhaps a joke or a punchline that just happened to work in the moment. And eventually what you do is you fill all these treasure chests of yours with all of these really good things that have worked in the past. And usually these things are relative associations to of different circumstances. So what I then, in my day-to-day now, what happens is, is if I, for instance, will hear somebody say something that's related, sort of like in a mind map, word map sort of style, I will hear something that someone will say and I'll be like, oh, in the past, I remember I've said something funny or I've said something that relates to that in the past. So then I will then be able to throw that out. And so then it sounds like I'm actually really being completely off the cuff, but to be completely honest and pull pull apart the cover and (laughs) tell the industry secret, it's sort of relative to something that I've said in the past, but I've just re-engineered that in order to relate to the current circumstance. And what it requires is a lot of self-reflection. I highly recommend people film themselves, take the time. I used to hate listening to my own own videos and my own recordings and stuff, but I had to get over that in order to be able to really look at my presentation and my performance and see the parts that I liked, see the parts that I didn't like. And when I discovered that, I then was able to go, okay, I'm going to put some of that in the treasure chest. I'm going to discard those. Those things didn't work. It it takes time. And I'm not going to lie. This is not something you build overnight. This is not something that people go, okay, great. I've heard the secret. I'm not just going to go off and do it tomorrow. It requires (laughs) self-reflection. It requires practice. It requires being acutely aware of your surroundings and how people are responding, looking people in the eye and seeing those initial reactions to what you're saying. But it's also being comfortable with knowing that sometimes things aren't going to work. That's okay as long as you can make a quick judgment to either discard that or to maybe try it again a couple more times and see if it works and then maybe discard it afterwards or keep it. But uh, you really need to be focused on how people are responding to you because uh, that lack of self-awareness is going to make it you're just basically going to be listening to your own voice and that's going to be the fastest way uh, on the downhill. Well, that's incredible. So you'll hear something, for example, at an event and you can ref- you reflect that back to something that you know, it triggers a memory and then you could take that story that you've had before and as you said, re-engineer it to make it relevant to the audience that you're in front of at that moment. 
Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily stories, but certainly, yes, stories are sort of part of that treasure chest too in my mind. But even just little anecdotes or tiny, tiny little sort of quips or something like that are, you know, up there as well. There are just things that I know work really well. And usually they are quirks of human nature or they're things that, you know, you may have had a a random conversation with somebody even on the street or something and all of a sudden, or one of your friends or family and all of a sudden you're like, oh wow, that concept actually really works. I'm sure I can apply that to a mass audience. And so it's just a years upon years of this, you know, amassed semantic soup for want of a better <laughs> phrase and i'm basically then just pulling you know out that soup reheating in the microwave and casting it out to the new audience but obviously in a much more tasteful and uh, gordon ramsay friendly kind of way there you go now i know it's early in the morning in sydney but can you think of an example off the top of your head Oh, gee. Oh, okay. You know, I can tell you a totally great example, actually. So, um, so one really great thing that works is when you turn what people are saying, you know, you, you sort of very cheekily turn what they're saying back on themselves by re-engineering the, the meaning of what they're trying to say. So what I mean by that is I recently did a, uh, just a couple of weeks back, I did uh, the pleasure of hosting the Dance for Cancer for the Cancer Council uh, in the Southwest region of Sydney. Extraordinary event, a whole bunch of local uh, community stars who are performing with some dance partners for, for charity for the Cancer Council of Australia. And what was really cool was I got the opportunity to do interviews after their performances to endear them to the crowd and to have a good time. And all of it's improv. You could, I guess, be the kind of MC that goes up with some prepared questions but it's not it's not a very engaging presentation if you do that so i'm like oh you know i was so excited you know and the first performance she did this really amazing thing with these kids and also the the kids teacher with halfway through the performance she did this magic trick where she went behind this curtain and then did like a magic dress change i was you know i was like oh well that's a really cool part of it you know i I like to pick those big moments those big feature moments that really stick in people the audience's minds that i can reflect back i uh when i got up on stage i was like oh hey i introduced myself and sort of set the scene for uh, the interview and then immediately i was like okay so like you know like what was the deal with the dress change and uh it's funny because the performer she goes she goes, oh, well, yeah. So I've never taken my kid off like this before. And I said, hang on, you've never taken your clothes off before. <laughs> By changing that, audience and hysterics, like such a great way to start the show. Um, but all I did was just change a couple of little words. We knew what she meant. It was a mundane comment, what she was saying, you know, like it, it was completely benign. But I changed it to, you know, make it sound like she's never got naked before. And all of a sudden, it's just raw comedy in its fashion. But it's not the first time I've made that joke, to be perfectly honest. There's been other moments that have been similar to that, where someone has said some form of euphemization of taking one's clothes off, maybe taking kid off or something other of that nature. And because that's a signal that reminded me immediately, my brain's like, oh, she's talking about getting naked. Mention it. That's funny. It's just pure joy in that moment. And so that's my 9am brain giving you a great, the best example I can so far. No, that's great. I'm sure it sets the tone for the entire event. That's incredible. It does. And those things, and they understand my style too. And that's really critical because all of a sudden people realize, oh, this is not just going to be like a boring, like clinical sort of presentation where 
it's just question answer you know say all the really nice cute stuff that everyone appreciates like oh you did an amazing job or who are you here for tonight who you're celebrating with who you're doing this for etc like yeah sure all those questions will come but i want the audience to always know that straight away here's the kind of things you can expect pepper throughout the audience and that really elevates and transforms people's experience well, that's great. That's super. Not everyone will achieve the level that you're at, but perhaps they might find themselves in a situation where they have to be an MC or a host. If you recall, just before we started to record, I mentioned that next weekend I'll be doing a quinceanera for mm. a young, young lady who's turning 15 for a good friend of mine. What sort of advice would you give somebody or what are some of the newbie mistakes people will make? One big mistake people make they expect that particularly in like these kind of settings where you've got people having a good time, they haven't seen each other in a while. And I'm talking like weddings, quinceaneras, like these are even big corporate events. Look, realistically, most events bar a funeral, people don't, they're not wanting to necessarily be completely quiet. You're going to have people in the audience who are going to be chattering and talking. So one of the biggest no-nos is what I call the teacher method. The fastest way to deactivate an audience away from liking you is going, okay, I'm not going to keep talking until you have all stopped talking. People are going to be like, oh, oh, awesome. All right, cool. We can just go back to drinking and talking. We don't care. We don't know you. We don't care. You'll, you'll lose your audience fast. And I've seen it happen so many times. It is cringy. It feels icky. My best advice to fix that it's the first off just accept that people, some people may talk over you and that's okay. But your, your job is to talk, not let them talk over you, but actually to talk over them so that you either, you're going to be able to command the attention of those who are willing to be interested. Also, you have to be aware that you have to be interesting enough in order to be at a little bit energetic enough in order to get that interest in the first place. Take your time, slow it down, remember that people, particularly if you're, as you mentioned in the scenario, you know, you're not necessarily primed like I am, but instead you've still been asked to do something because people want you in that moment to be the MC. But just know that the crowd is on your side. So they know that perhaps it's not your professional full-time job or you're stepping up to the role. You know, know that people are prepared to, they're on your side there. They're cheering you on. So take it slow. Don't get caught in trying to have complete silence or all their attention and everything else like that. You will gain that respect over the course of the night if you forge forward. There have been moments like I had last night when I was trying to get the um, the award started, very rowdy crowd, open bar. You can imagine, you know, it's a public speaker's worst nightmare sometimes. But, you know, he's like to me, he says, oh, can you, I was trying to do the intro. And he's like, oh, can you get the more shush a bit? And in my head, I'm thinking, this is not going to work. But on the outside, I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, of course, I'm not going to say no to the client. So, like, I, you know, I did a little bit to try to simmer them down. But I never wanted to push it too far because I know that at the end of the day, I'm just going to start announcing their colleagues' names for the first awards. And they're all going to go back to talking and being excited again. So why would you want to suppress that? Forging forward with confidence, looking people in the eye as you do it, engaging people one by one, and being fun on stage and just being your best self, you will get so much further in accomplishing a great night than you will in trying to just control every aspect, including literally controlling people's lips because you just can't do it. 
So 80% is okay. Don't try to work for 100%. I noticed you mentioned the word a few times. You mentioned the word slow, slow down. Mm-hmm. I noticed that quite often there's a tendency of people just wanting to rush through it and they just start rambling on. What are some of the tips that you can offer for that? That is a great question. You need to identify the moments where you're most uncomfortable. People usually are more relaxed and talk slower when they feel like they're a subject expert or something that they're used to talking about. So I would say don't focus on practicing the parts that you know you've already been practicing for a long time because you are an expert at it or at least you you feel confident with it. Focus on the parts when you're practicing and you're putting your notes together on parts of the evening that you're not so confident about. And by doing that, it means you can bring some level of confidence in your presentation when the time comes. Your mind won't be racing in a million miles per hour. Usually people are racing and going through it quickly because A, they're either trying to barrel through something that they're very likely, they know that they're not have a good command of and so they are just barreling right through it just to sort of you know trick their own brain into thinking they did a good job and they got past it or two they are trying to actually use their fast prose in order to be able to cover the fact that their mind is running a million miles per hour trying to figure out what to say and they're stressing about the fact that they don't feel like they have enough good subject material and they're waffling, etc. So then they use like sort of fast speech of random words that technically go together according to the dictionary but don't really say much in order to obfuscate the moment so then they feel, oh, okay, now I've found my pace. And I used to do this. This is something that I know I used to do. This I fell into that second category where I would waffle and waffle and waffle and people would be like, look, you eventually got to where we needed to hear you. You eventually said the nucleus of the argument, but unfortunately you gave us one minute full of rubbish and over explaining and going around and defining the meaning of life and all that kind of stuff. And it was heartbreaking to hear it at the start because I thought the essence of presentation is to fill the air. No, It's not. The essence of good presentation is to fill the air appropriately and confidently and engagingly, if that's even a word, with dynamic gusto and allow the other parts of the evening for people to reflect, allow them to soak in your words and allow them to also be a part of the experience too and to reflect back and perhaps even provide a dialogue if you're in a circumstance where there is a two-way street of communication. That's really where you begin to succeed and that's how you end up slowing down because you realize you don't have to say as many words. Yeah, exactly. I think people are afraid of the dead air. They're afraid of the pause. So they'll put in 15 or 20 words when three words would suffice. And of course, at the end of their verbal diarrhea, for lack of a better term, they just realize that the two or three points that they really need to get across, they never got to them because they were just rambling on. Exactly. (laughs) And I've been there. I've done that too. (laughs) Definitely a key pillar philosophy of mine that has been a, a true North Star when it comes to my onstage presentation and preparation is the concept of word economy. Essentially, word economy is where you are saying the most by actually saying the least. And I know that sounds really reductive, but it's supposed to be. When you're talking, and I touched on this earlier, it's very easy to provide a lot of filler 
it's very easy to think that the amount of words you're using are providing greater levels of context. But to be perfectly frank, most audiences that you're going to be speaking to are actually relatively intelligent on an average scale. (laughs) They don't need you to provide the Oxford dictionary meaning of every single word. They also don't need you to over-explain. Basic example, if you're emceeing an event and part of it, the patter you're supposed to give is the housekeeping, you don't need to give a play-by-play, like meter-by-meter example of how to get to the bathroom. (laughs) No one needs that. Just say, it's just out that door, turn right, done. That's it. I mean, if you have a joke associated with bathrooms, great. But apart from that, that's it. You don't need to say anything more than that. Really break down every element and think to myself, how can I economize my word delivery and reduce and redact and minimize the words I'm saying that still get the exact impact and meaning that I'm trying to accomplish. And it's not an easy thing. It goes into one of those, those camps of it takes a long time. I had many mentors in my life remind me constantly after getting off a stage, word economy, my friend. I'm like, oh, really again? Because yes, you took far too long to explain that game show. You only needed 60 seconds, a good 60 second elevator pitch to explain that people needed to come up, grab their pencils, get into a team of six, don't cheat and we'll start soon. And instead you went on this incredibly long tangent about where the pencils are located and then how you form a team. And it's just like, that was very early on, of course, but it was definitely a wake up call. And I'm grateful that those people told me all those opportunities that I needed to say less. That's amazing. You'd never think that you would use the concept of the elevator pitch on a cruise ship stage, (laughs) but it makes sense. (laughs) That was true. I actually learned that phrase from uh, Ryan Fitzgerald, who was the former director of entertainment operations at Princess. It left an incredible legacy at Princess Cruises. And uh, shout out to Ryan. He definitely taught me a lot. And uh, one of the biggest things, word economy. And another thing he taught me was uh, never sacrifice the good for the perfect. And I think that definitely applies also in what we do because we're often sort of sometimes, you know, chasing this this ideal of perfection but realistically you're never going to have a perfect gig in the sense of like the perfect semantic perfection so to speak you know there's always gonna be like a little slip up or a kind of little little mistake you make or perhaps you know you weren't as clean with an intro or something like that overall you just want to make sure that your overall ideal presentation is great and as long as you're focused on that instead of slapping yourself on the back for messing up one little part of a name or something, you're going to go far. I think sometimes the audience loves the fact that you show your humanity because I still remember telling a joke and it fell flat. And <laughs> the first time I had told that joke was on a Wednesday evening at an event. I tried to mm-hmm. use the same joke on a Saturday morning and I put note to self if it's before 10 a.m don't use this and it, it got a pretty good laugh <laughs> oh there you go see but that's that's a great example of you like doing the treasure chest thing i was mentioning earlier right like you you kept something you thought it had something to it you thought it had legs you reflected upon it you still kept it within you didn't you didn't just completely discard it you judged it as something that could have value down the line you just need to rework it maybe with a different audience or a different context or a different build-up clearly you executed that correctly. So that was fantastic. 
Thanks. I mean, a few years earlier, if that would have happened and things like that did happen, I would have just been devastated. Just like, oh, mm. I just can't handle this. And by the way, actually, just, just a bit of a sidebar, if I can transform one portion of the MC industry, please, please, please do not do grand bridal groom entrances or similar things in the corporate world after you do housekeeping. If for the love of God, you can really try to ensure that you do your like big showy parts, which are the entrances and everything else, and then talk about toilets, that would be fantastic. Anyway, that's my PSA for today. <laughs> Obviously, communication skills are critical for, for being an MC, for being a host. A lot of what we talked about is relevant to more than just being an MC or a host. Out of curiosity, are there any, a few other skills perhaps you can just mention briefly that you feel that someone should really have to be really good at being an MC or a host? What are some of the other things? Yeah, this is one thing that a lot of people don't talk about um, because they they assume that everything is just about the stage and you're on stage craft and you you know your dynamic presentation. A lot of it really actually comes down to your ability off stage. And I know some people may disagree with me with this, or they may be a bit confronting to begin with. But realistically, the difference that I I know I have in this industry and I bring is that I'm and I'm not alone in this. It's just certainly not as common. Is that you need to connect with people both on stage and off stage. And by that, I mean, when you're off stage, you need to be shaking hands, getting to know people, learning their names, learning their stories, injecting yourselves into countless conversations throughout the night. And it's not just like quick little like, oh, having a good night. Oh, that's nice. And then you're walking around going, having a good night. And you just sound like an idiot. At some point, people go, is that all you got to say? I'm talking about having real connecting conversations with people. What this does for your onstage presentation is that people become familiar with you. They become your friend. They become friendly towards you. They see you as a personable person who they feel special that you were the person who was just talking to them. And all of a sudden now you're on stage doing this amazing thing and they go, oh, I know that guy. You're no longer an unfamiliar entity. The amount of times I see things come about that like events, I watch other things happen, other MCs work and they don't work the room at all, but they expect as soon as they come onto the room for people to love them. They, they arrive late. They only get there maybe a half an hour call or whatever. They go straight to the green room or if they're at a wedding, they just slip away, talk to their mates at the vendors and everything else like that. They come in and they do this entrance and people are like, who are you? Like, we've never seen you before. They expect, oh, I'm your MC. Oh, give me a round of applause. I'm so amazing. Rah. And everyone's like, oh, sure. I mean, we don't want to make you sound weird. So we'll give you like a little bit of an applause, whatever. But, but there's no connection. And the first impression to your audience is, oh, you need to love me before I give anything to you. The MC host world, we're in service to our audience from the beginning to the end. That is just a fact. It is, it is a hard fact as well sometimes because musicians and other performers and magicians or other people that come out, we're going to introduce are going to be people going to gravitate towards those immediately within two seconds, you know, like a band will strum their guitar for a sound check and all the women in the room swoon, you know, it's just important that you remember you're in service to your audience. And so you need to provide service to them, not just on stage, but where it really critically matters is off stage as well. Yeah. 
I encourage anybody listening to at your next event to get there earlier, insist that you're part of the canapes or the, the pre-dinner drinks or the networking beforehand or whatever context you're in, get to know people and then feel free to, you know, call upon them throughout the night. Obviously don't divulge all their details of the private conversations you've been having, but certainly if there's something funny or something relatable or something that really stood out, even if it's just their name and just acknowledging them, my, it just, it transforms the way that people feel about you. We certainly had a lot of golden nuggets in terms of helping the MC or the host do a better job in an event. If someone is looking at hosting or having an event and they're looking at having an MC, what are some of the most important things that they should be asking in terms of ensuring that they have the right person? A couple of the questions that I'd recommend, first off, just get to know them personally. Like just ask them like friendly questions you would ask anybody really, because at the end of the day, we are, we are your ultimate friend, your ultimate guy or gal that's going to be in your camp throughout the entire process. And so, and we're also like the, the really the glue that holds it all together. So realistically, if you don't even like us as a friend or as a friendly person, <laughs> don't even bother. If it doesn't vibe, thank them for their time and see you later. But of course, if the vibe is good, which, you know, should most of the time be the case, even if you had multiple sessions with other people you're, you're fielding, then the next step is to ask them, not necessarily if they've been to the venue or anything else. What's more important is perhaps, you know, asking about their background, what their motivations are as an MC, how their process is, asking them specifically the process that they take to get the entire wedding or event planned. So whether or not they insert themselves into the run sheet creation, if they have any influence or experience in production and in terms of the the flow of an event itself and how it's all put together from a more macro scale. With all of that, you then begin to, to discover whether or not you're going to get a lot of great value from that person or if they're going to be the kind of person who's more accustomed to showing up and sitting in the shadows at the vendor table or in the green room and only coming out to do the, the most important part, which is the onstage part, and then to disappear again. Also ask them if they do anything else, if they offer anything else that perhaps can enhance the night. For example, I offer the, the largest list of entertainment options in the country in terms of improvisational games and activities that make their wedding night completely unique to all the other weddings. It's all improvisational stuff. So it's never, even if I run the same game, it's never going to be the same game twice. I would say, you know, any added value, definitely. And also ask them, you know, how much you're able to communicate with them throughout the process. For instance, a lot of people in our industry and niche are, you know, not full-time. So they often have limited time throughout the week in order to be able to even have a hands-on experience with the planning. So that's fine. If that's how they're going to be, and that doesn't resonate with you, then you also need to find someone who will have more hands-on time. But if you don't care about that, then that's not a problem. Yeah, that's certainly sage advice. You also brought up something that's really important as well is some people may not have a specific wedding planner. And for some people, that wedding is the first type of event or an event of that nature that they've ever done. Obviously, someone like yourself will come to the table with vast amounts of experience and you can actually help them fill in that plan. So that's actually really good as well. Oh, absolutely. And most couples end up not getting a wedding planner. It's not as common compared to all the other vendors. It's an expense that usually people often don't, they save in order to put to other categories. So 
you leverage your MC to the hilt, you know, know that they should be somebody who can basically be a faux step in quasi planner there are those critical things that and certainly on the night you're there basically your coordinator as well as your mc those are the things you definitely can rely on for them to be able to accomplish so nathan before i ask you where people can find you one last final question it's evident from speaking with you and also doing my research ahead of time that you absolutely love what you do what's the biggest joy you get out of what you do oh wow Honestly, just being able to come away from an event and know that people are going to remember it for a very long time because of the impact that I had to the event, may it be the, my onstage, you know, uh, presentation and whatever, or of course, all those little moments and intermissions in between where I've had those conversations, as I mentioned earlier, and just getting to know people the games that I bring to the event or, you know, a particular funny moment that I was able to bring out on stage, like I mentioned earlier at the dance event, things like that, just the whole collective mix of all of that creates an unforgettable experience that people are always going to be able to reflect on. But people always share memories. People compare their experience from one to the next. And so being the invigilator, being the creator, being the designer, being the alchemist, being the presenter and purveyor of those happy, fun, beautiful, dynamic, exciting, engaging uh, moments in people's lives and being the glue that held it all together is, you know, for me a really humbling experience because it's such a unique uh, microsm of human behavior that you know only so 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 many of us in this world have so i'm truly grateful that i was born with this innate and i was able to discover it and i had people along the way who could help me to be able to deliver happiness and joy to the masses it would be a sad day when i have to hang up the microphone for whatever reason because you'd have to tear me away from the stage <laughs> because i know that i've had i have an ability to provide happiness to people. Yeah, pretty much what gets me out of bed every day and I love it. Wow. What an amazing transformation from being bullied and being an introvert as a child. And finally, if someone like would like to reach out to you, where are some of the places they can find you? Of course, uh, my website is www.nathancassar.com.au. All my main showreel portfolio, past galleries and all the good fun stuff on my blogs and everything else are on there. I also can be found on Facebook, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, all my links are directly to them. I'm sure you'll be putting in the show notes, but also uh, on my um, on my website as well. And I've just got a YouTube page going up as well. It's uh, it's going strong. Got all my videos there, and I've even got a Pinterest page. Nathan Kassar, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies. 
a new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com. 